Blog Talk Radio. Assalamualaikum and welcome to A Time for Justice. The Elevated Net Places Network presents A Time for Justice, and we are so happy to be on the Elevated Places Network. A Time for Justice discusses legal and current events in a roundtable discussion of legal minds. We discuss this country's centuries-long failure to apply, uphold, and enforce the laws and the overall failure of the legal system to give justice and the negative impacts these failures have had on black people and their black families. Ultimately, we want fair dealing. We want justice under the law. But all too often, this is not the actions that we see. Our guest tonight will not make those excuses for racist conduct often seen, which are really just distractions from the truth, which is the path to justice and equal protection. So let's talk about just, fair, and equitable solutions, which are in the best interest of the people. Let's remove the distractions. I'm so excited tonight. Uh, to to have the show and the topic, we're going to once again talk about defending the innocent. And we're going to take a deeper look into what does the in, defending the innocent mean, especially for us as black people and black attorneys who are striving to be righteous, who are striving to be a part of the new kingdom, not this old, illegal, and um, negative system where deception is placed at the highest form. We don't want to um, have a show tonight about lawyers, uh, you know, where we're just giving you input on some of the techniques and skills that we use in the courtroom, we want to get deeper into who are the the people that are usually the accused and how we know they're innocent because we know that in this society, there's always a certain amount of deception that is used against us, especially black people here in America. And we're talking about innocent people, that's who we're talking about. We're talking about the descendants of slaves, where, as it was stated in the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, you know, we are, are, the whole institutionalism 
of racial oppression is sometimes found in the judicial system. It's found in the domestic policies which would be formed, and they reflect the underlying white racial ethos, so the uh, secret relationship tells us. And it's exemplified, not in the Constitution, because the Constitution, you know, it has all these lofty promises such as due process and equal protection, the right to free speech, the right to be found innocent until proven guilty. But we know that these are things that black people in America are often found not receiving. And and it really, I think, is very interesting when we look at the Compromise of 1877, which we know that that compromise was done and nullified the agreements such as the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment. And this is where we see black people being returned to virtual slavery, denied the civil rights, assigned to permanent political, social, and economic inferiority. And so, again, this is what forms the basis of a lot of these laws. This is what forms the basis of the legal manipulation. This is what forms the basis of the abridgment of the right to have free speech especially when we are promoting our rights to fair and equal treatment, especially when the truth um, is out, we're trying to get the truth out to keep these oppressive and manipulative and false accusations that many times form the basis of crimes that our people are innocently accused of. So this is what we want to take a deeper look at tonight at the innocent and how defending the innocent is is our subject. And so, as I said, I'm so excited because we have, as our guest tonight, we have Brother Athil Muhammad, who is an attorney who has been on the show uh, pretty often, and I'm so thankful that he's taken his time to join us. Also have a first-time um uh, visitor with us, and I'm so honored because we have Brother Nabah Muhammad, who is the editor-in-chief of the Final Call newspaper. Um, And I would like to read Brother Nabah's biography and sketch and introduce him to some, you know, but all of us know this great paper, the best paper I believe on the planet, the Final Call newspaper. So, Brother Nabah Muhammad is the editor-in-chief of the Final Call, the only nationally distributed weekly newspaper in black America. The Final Call, and that address is www.finalcall.com. It is published by the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam and follows in the traditional Uh, in the tradition of the Muhammad Speaks, the groundbreaking publication published by the Nation of Islam in the 1960s and 70s. Brother Muhammad became the editor of The Final Call in 2009. He is a former managing editor, and he opened The Final Call East Coast Bureau in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. 
Brother Muhammad also is the founder of Straight Words Communication and Straight Words Easy Line and has for over 30 years been had this type of experience as a media professional. Brother Muhammad is devoted to independent news, analysis, opinions, and social justice. And Mr. Muhammad, he oversaw some of the day-to-day operation or he oversaw the day-to-day fight operation of the final call, the largest black print um, weekly newspaper in America for over a decade, and sought news and analysis to blacks in America, the diaspora, and progressive people, uh, giving us what we needed to know. He brings keen vision and commitment to ethical reporting, solid writing, and important and interesting topics. Yes, yes, this is so important because also our brother, Naba Muhammad, he published his first book, The Dope Busters, Farrakhan Fanatics or Saviors, The True Story of the D.C. Crack Cocaine Crisis and Successful Muslim Anti-Drug Patrols. In 2018, he wrote that book or published it, and he also um just to give a little background, Brother Muhammad grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and graduated from Morgan State University, earning a BA in English. So, Mr. Muhammad, um, he is again, he is the editor in chief of the Final Call, and we are so honored to have him on the line. Let me see if I can open up his mic and greet our brother. Brother Naba Muhammad? Yes, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, sir, and thank you so much for joining us on A Time for Justice. Yes, sir. Just, uh, thank you, first of all, for um, for having me, and I'm really looking forward to our uh, conversation in particular uh, from the viewpoint of what I do. And I think when you talk about the victimization of black people, the victimization is tied to the character assassination and the image annihilation of black people. When that happens, that opens the door to all of these other things. Because when you look at, as you said, uh, when Reconstruction was was uh, done away with during that, that compromise, there was a rationale given, even though it was a false rationale. And then that rationale and that story was spread through media and images. So one of the, the one of what is considered to be one of the great uh, movies and a classic uh, in American cinema is a movie called Birth of a Nation. And that movie yes. was based on a book called The Klansman. And so Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffin, not the one by uh, our brother in 2016, but by D.W. Mm-hmm. Griffin was seen as a cinematic masterpiece, a cinematic masterpiece. And um, what it did, 
it really, it, it really, and I'm, I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Um, it really showed um, how, and it justified how um, the the entire um, turning back the clock of, of black people. So this film was a 1915 silent movie directed by D.W. Griffin. And this movie, really the underlying premise, if you will, was the really vile depiction of black people, the, this horrible depiction of black people which set black people up as the villains, which, of course, set white people up as the saviors and the victims and the noble ones who had been taken advantage of by these really deceptive, uncultured, uh, characterless black folks. And when you look today and when something happens, the very thing you see almost 99 and a half times out of 100, you will then see a character assassination of the person who was killed by the police, of the person who was arrested by the police, of the person who was fired from the job, of the person who was deprived of property. You know, so that's um, disconnecting media images and communication with the theme of justice. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for that, because that is right into our conversation, as as you're saying, because in law, the villainization oftentimes is called racial profiling and targeting. And so these are the things that we, we want to talk about with uh, our attorney, Brother Atheo Muhammad, as well. So I think this is so beautiful. So let me go ahead and open up Brother Atheo's mic. Brother Atheo. Yes, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, ma'am, and good evening to you and the uh, listening audience. And my dear brother, Brother Nabah, we go way, way back. And I'm really <laughs> honored to be on this uh, panel discussion. Uh, you know, with you, of course, Sister Pamela, but, but Brother Nabah, oh, man, this is, uh, I have my pen and paper in hand, too. I'm taking some notes That's and just right. going right down memory lane. Thank you so very much for, oh. for this wonderful uh, platform, Sister Pamela. Oh, praises are due to Allah. And I want to, you know, introduce Brother Thiel as well. Brother Thiel, Thiel as we know, he's an attorney. Brother Thiel's raised in Brooklyn, New York. Actually, he's an attorney doing a lot of things in Houston, Texas, such as employment discrimination, civil rights. He likes to say that he represents people accused of crimes, and that's very important. Brother Theo also, um, he, he serves as a attorney staff assistant to the General Council of the Nation of Islam. And uh, Brother Theo is just, like I say, he's a well-known uh, person and personality on our show. So thank you again, Brother Theo. And I, would, I too, uh, Brother Theo, am so honored to have Brother Nabah uh, Muhammad on our show. Um, and so I want to start off, Brother Nabat, and ask you to talk to us about the magnitude of this great position of being the editor-in-chief of the 
I say the most famous newspaper in the country, mm-hmm. if not the world. And you know, but the uniqueness as it it completely it's completely black owned, black controlled, and it is a great. I think the one of the greatest defenders of black people. Can can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that role and some of your experience? Oh, just to absolutely, you, you probably will have to um, give me some kind of signal to start going to stop because this is no, no, go right ahead. Um, yes, sir. But before I want to get into it, I gotta say thank you, sister, for having me. And we, of course, feature you as one of the voices in our cover story this week about uh, black people, black children, black families, black parents being under yes, assault sir. by the, the children's uh, defense oh, uh, child protection lot. agencies around the country. You can read that at finalcall.com, um, and you can hear, or you can actually can hear if you get the digital edition, because you can actually listen to the audio. Or you can go to finalcall.com and you can read Sis Pamela's, uh, you know, her explanation, her observations, her insight is, is very good. And we've used her before, and I've actually called her uh, when we were looking at some cases and just was blessed to have the um, the, the benefit of her knowledge and our thinking. Uh, man, Brother Thiel and I go all oh, the way back to the great old days. In the great old days in Washington, D.C., where I came into the mosque in uh, December of 1986. So that's about 35 years ago. But, man, Brother Theo, I mean, you know, it's it's great. I'm honored to really be able to talk to you and, and to see and hear about the great things, you know, that, that you're doing. And I think the beauty of the nation of Islam at its core is that it allows us to be ourselves. And so for me to have uh, become editor of the Final Call newspaper, which actually came um, after, well, I was actually, I had left the paper. I was actually uh, running my own media consulting business, Straight Worth Communications, and was doing pretty well. But uh, Brother Arf, Abdul Arf Muhammad was editor-in-chief then, and he and Brother Abdul Rasul Muhammad, who was working under him, who is now Final Call General Manager, um, conspired to get me to come back where basically Brother Abdul Rasul told uh, Brother uh, Arf Muhammad, just get him to come in the building. And if you get him to come in the building, get him to commit to one page, and once you do that, you got him. He won't be able to help himself. And so that's that's basically what, what it's been. Um, graduated from Morgan State, uh, BA in English, concentration in journalism, um, interned with the Baltimore Sun in high school and in college, uh, worked in public affairs when I graduated, uh, came into the nation, started contributing to the final call under the great uh, late editor, my mentor, Abdul Wali Muhammad, um, who gave me the opportunity. So I started under him contributing and part-time then full-time opening up um, our bureau in, in Washington, D.C. with his unfortunate and uh, suspicious passing. Uh, I was asked to come to Chicago to help then-editor James C. Muhammad, which I did for many, many, many years. Um, and uh, it's been, first of all, for me, a labor of love. 
I've, I've always had a love of writing and a love of black people. So working, really not even working, being a part of the mission of the final call is really a marriage of my two loves. And so for us, the final call represents freedom, justice, and equality for our people. It represents bringing light, life, and power to our people. It it represents the mental, spiritual, social, economic resurrection of our people out of the grave of ignorance, out of the grave of denial, out of the grave of distraction. So every week our charge, every week our challenge is to try to present our people with information and the most present and most prescient information we can present uh, is the teachings and the great wisdom of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, which has been given to us, explained to us, uncovered, unfolded, uh, and elevated, if you will, allowing us to go into the deeper meanings to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, who literally started the Final Call newspaper in 1979 in his basement. So we have a commitment to truth. We are like, uh, as the minister said, we should be like a watchman on the wall, looking for that which could be of harm to our people. So we are the official voice of the Nation of Islam, but we're not a Muslim newsletter. We are a paper devoted to the cause of freedom, justice, and equality for black people in America, and now at this point all over the planet. And so you will see a a range of information, um, starting with, of course, our plight here, social, economic, um, political, all of these different areas that impact black life. Our hope is not just to present information, but to offer insight. You'll also see us deal with international topics, such as the plight of Uyghur Muslims in China, who are being oppressed, such as the plight of our brothers and sisters in Haiti, who are still fighting to recover um, from an earthquake and a political crisis all at the same time. Um, Other fights that we have throughout the Caribbean, the struggle that we have in Africa, uh, and along with that, even the struggle of our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in Australia. So we take that as a very um, great honor and responsibility. We try to to be accurate because, number one, our duty is to present truth as best we can, to not be afraid, and to really stand on that firm foundation of the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. And we were given a great example of that with Muhammad Speaks. Now the final call is... I think we'll be coming up on 42 years soon. So that's a wonderful, wonderful time. So we are looking for information. We are presenting information. And we're extending opportunity. So for you young writers out there, for you young designers out there, for you young videographers out there, you know, what are you waiting for? What are you doing? We got a big field that's awaiting for you right now. If you are skilled in social media, I need to hear from you. Why haven't you stepped forward? What are you waiting for? This is your time. The Nation of Islam has a history of putting young people to work, 
We're blessed to have some great young people uh, working for us now, like Sister Tarika Shakir Muhammad, who's a staff writer out of Chicago, uh, Sister Anissa Muhammad, who's in Georgia, who's a contributing writer, uh, Sister J.S. Adams, another great young writer, uh, and we have Brother Nadir, who does layout. All of them are under age 25. So if you're looking for opportunity, look no further. Join the team. This is nation building time, and in addition to our work of providing light, life, and power, it is always wonderful to provide opportunity to other people. It's always wonderful to see young people grow because I was given an opportunity. I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. And so for me, the idea of expanding that opportunity is always uh, something that I relish. So between those different duties, to warn, to inspire, to uplift our people, present the nation of Islam in its true light, and absolutely uh, to defend the teachings of the Honorable Muhammad, to defend the Honorable Muhammad, and to defend the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, uh, those are some of the joys of my life as well as for us to tell our own story and define ourselves. We will never be free. We will never be properly represented so long as other people are speaking for us. We must speak for ourselves, and that's basically a restatement of the credo of the black press, which has been the credo of the black press from its beginning so we coordinate and we cooperate with other black newspapers. We're part of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, which is about two, uh, over 200 weekly uh, newspapers that we, we work with. We're now uh, looking now to extend some partnerships. Um, so we hope to go to finalcall.com, read and subscribe. But more than anything, we hope that when you see the mighty FOI, the men of the Nation of Islam, out with this paper, Understand what you're looking at. You're looking at men delivering truth in a, tr- in a time of trouble. You're looking at men who are committed to a cause and willing to produce and willing to get out and to offer themselves in the middle of a pandemic. We could not do what we do without the brothers of the food of Islam, and we always pray for their success. We always try to give them the most outstanding product. And lastly, every week, we try to to get just a little bit better. Sir, that is so beautiful because as you talked about the resurrection of the dead by giving this information, um, it reminds me of myself because I was that young person, this young entrepreneur who actually was kind of selling Final Calls because I had a small black bookstore, and I read more Final Calls that I sold, <laughs> and it was so interesting because the more I read, sometimes I would take the articles and cut them out and hang them on my walls in the store because it would just be so illuminating. So I bear witness of this beautiful paper and the power of truth, and, and I, let's get into some of this conversation because as you talked about 
truth and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan's commitment to bringing the truth and the newspaper as, you know, as well. And in this day and time, we know truth is just really um, not what we're seeing. We're seeing so many lies being told and the vilification of of our people. And, and so I wanted to start with this. I know you wrote a book, and your book is about um, – Dope Busters, Farrakhan, Fanatics, or Saviors. And in that book, um, you, you call it the true story of the D.C. crack cocaine crisis and successful Muslim anti-patrols. So I wanted to ask you, and I think I can ask Brother Phil the same question, how do drugs, how did this drugs in the black community create victimization in courts, false narratives about character, yeah. You know, again, this is all going back to this virtual slavery that we've been in since 1877. But, um, you know, can you discuss with us some of the points um, from your book? And I'm coming at you too, yeah. Brother Thiel, with that same um, question. Yeah. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of go quick because I really want to hear uh, what Brother Thiel has to say. One, and I'm sure both of you know historically, that we've seen over and over again, when different drugs were made illegal, more often than not, the people that were targeted when the drugs became illegal were black people. From the early days when cocaine was declared to be a a harmful substance, on and on and on and on and on. Very often the the, the menacing face was that of an out-of-control black man. So whether you're talking about the beating of Rodney King, which led to the uh, riots in the, uh, I guess that would have been the 1990s or 1980s, where they said this big black man, this big black man was high on PCP, and Mm. he was out of control, and and, and they couldn't stop him, and so they had to beat him, and they had to beat him, you know, kind of mercilessly because he was this big boot on drugs and, and out of control. And so, um, you know, the, the, the death and the level of death, and people may have forgotten now, but this was a, an incredible, devastating um, epidemic in our community. And the yes, crack cocaine epidemic was so devastating that even those who had dealt with former drugs would say they longed for the day when our people were hooked on heroin because a heroin addict may uh, nod off on a corner and a heroin addict may even be able to function to some degree. But what we saw with the crack cocaine was the absolute transformation of our people very quickly from somebody who could work and function to somebody who would literally rob, steal, and sometimes even kill their mother, their family member. We saw uh, young women that were once the pride of their families very quickly uh, turned into those that would now uh, give their body for this small uh, rock-like substance that was called crack cocaine. Of course, along with that came violence, and it's interesting that somehow or another in a society where black people have always been prevented from being armed, Somehow or another, when crack cocaine came in, and it was such a lucrative um, 
uh, operation, and there's actually parts of my book where I really get into what was it about that time period that made for such fertile ground for drug trafficking, that made it so attractive, that made it so lucrative, uh, that made it in a, in a lot of ways for so many of our people something that was um, irresistible. So with that, of course, then you get laws that are changed. With that, of course, you get sentences. With that, of course, you get then the criminalization of an entire people and an entire community. And I'll lastly, I'll close with this. So if you look at the opioid addiction in recent years, which has hit uh, the white community very hard and we don't, desire for any human being to suffer from addiction and to go through the degradation and the pain and the death. But what we saw with this uh, opioid addiction that many whites suffered, what we saw was an immediate kind of response from the media. These people weren't criminalized. They were victims. We saw immediate responses from law enforcement, trying to find ways to be public servants instead of simply enforcers of the law. We saw differences with courts and the legal system, and I'm sure Brother Abdel can deal more with that, but we saw them quickly now start to try to find ways to not be punitive. And so many of the types and and now people being remanded to treatment, and now the ones that created the drugs eventually uh, that even though that family, the Sackler family, that produced things like oxycodone, um, even though they have not been jailed, they have paid a they have paid a financial penalty. We could argue whether or not that penalty is sufficient. And even though they did not admit any wrongdoing, the fact that money was paid points to some level of responsibility being attached directly to the one that provided the drug, that made okay. the money, that fed the epidemic, that never happened with crack cocaine. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. You know, and, and what you're saying is so important. Thank you for that. Because, you know, we have to look at this virtual slavery uh, paradigm because we're talking about the use of laws to target people targeting drugs were actually we were targeted the black community was targeted by a chemical mix that was cheap and made it accessible you know targeted by laws that were um harsher you know in in the final call article with the children our communities are targeted for child removal so we're talking about the use of laws to target us, the, all the drugs that are dropped in our community. So, Brother Theo, I, I wanted to ask you that same question about the the the, the drugs in the community. Um, and and let me make sure I got this specific question because I do have how how do drugs, the use of, the punishment for, and the commercialization in the black community create victimization in the courts? Um, you know, yes, sir. Well, you know, as you say about the commercialization of it, you know, as Brother Nabang was stating, you know, and we look back in the night, you know, to the, you know, the late 80s, 
and early 90s when the crack epidemic exploded. You know, some of uh, us may be, you know, old enough to remember, you know, when we talk about the commercialization, the media's role in this, and particularly is that I'm going on, Hollywood's role. You had movies Mm -hmm. like Menace to Society, which did, you know, depict, you know, a a different level, if you will. But nonetheless, you know, Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, and New Jack City, you know, for whatever worth those movies had, and they did, I'm not criticizing those, but the other part was, you know, if it was taken the wrong way, those movies sort of glamorized the, you know, the uh, uh, drug and, and, and crack epidemic. And if we recall, you know, for, for some of us who, who may recall, when the United States Sentencing Guidelines, it was around that time that the United States Sentencing Guidelines were amended, you know, to include now a harsher punishment for, you know, drugs that, you know, was specifically, you know, crack cocaine and uh, uh, and what's the, uh, and um, uh, meth, you know, amphetamines and these different things. But the bottom line was, that the U.S. sentencing guidelines actually had a disparate effect and treatment on our people because Mm. we had no jobs. And so, you know, and we had really, you know, no hope, if you will. And so the only way in which we could find ourselves to be, you know, economically uh, self-sufficient, we turned to a lot of our young people turned to, you know, the drug trade, if you will. And it became, as I said, with those sorts of movies, you know, and with the, you know, the repeated, the, the television shows and those different things. And so now you have the glamorization of, you know, of the, of that culture coupled with the U.S. sentencing guidelines being amended. And of course, the various states had gone along with it. And many of the states also had uh, it, uh, uh, passed these with the three strikes you're out laws and those different things. So now if you have a young person or any person for that matter, but particularly young black men who uh, uh, may have had, you know, minor brushes with the law two or three times. Now the third time is now you're, you're out, you know, you're, you're caught out there, if you will three strikes you're out and those different things. So that then, you know, that you cannot escape the way in which we have been portrayed and the way in which the media has portrayed this. And as I always say, you know, that those persons who are listening and have heard me speak about this before, the media plays a tremendous, tremendous role in the court system. Because as I've always said, and people know this, the prosecutors, whether they be on the federal side or state side, whatever the situation may be, if there is a crime that happens in a particular city, you have the media on there. They are tainting the jury pool. You'd never hear mm. very seldom hear the accused side of the story. So no matter what happens, if an officer you know, gets shot, if um, um, if there's some you know drug thing, if whatever the crime uh, uh, might be reported on, you already have the media out there, and they're looking at it and tainting the potential jury pool. So now, when you fast forward, now I have a young black man, a young black woman, you know, before the court, 
and uh, now they're in trial, jurors going to remember that, that person. Oh, yeah, I remember, you know, seeing, let's say, ABC News or Channel 7 News or whatever news outlet they looked at, and they remember what happened. And so now they already have in their minds, they are already predisposed to convict. And so mm. when now that thing of you're innocent to proven guilty, no, that, that, that's the farce. And I tell everybody that I represent who are accused of crimes, get that out of your mind. We have to prove our innocence because the media has, you know, has, has put it in such, a, in, in such a way that we are guilty just because you were in court. And even sometimes the situation may be, you know, when we're sitting at the, at, at the lawyers' tables in these courtrooms, some of the jurors may even be thinking, well, he, may, he or she may not have done this, but he may have done something else. Or they even think in their minds even worse than that, gee, I wonder what he or she did as opposed to wonder what he or she is accused of doing. Mm. And that is, you know, that whole villainization, if you will, you know, when we come into these courts, if we're accused of something, we have such a role to hold because we already looked at, because we are villainized, we already looked at as guilty. I don't care what anybody says, that, that thing about, again, you're innocent to proven guilty. That's nah, just a farce. People just say that. Yes, sir. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, can I, I, think can I, can go, I add something? Go, go right ahead. That's a real quick. I mean, and, and it, the, what Brother Phil mentioned about media coverage, there were programs like I think it was a, a, a network program that came on DC every night. It was called City Under Siege, and basically mm. it dealt a lot with the crack cocaine crisis in Washington DC. Um, and the other thing was, you know, uh, Brother uh, Phil, the the movie um, Scarface. Even though it was about a Cuban uh, drug dealer in Miami, right, starring Al Pacino, released in 1983, that movie is kind of one of the quote-unquote classics that Black people watch. With the whole so the whole thing of drug culture, and going back further to kind of drug culture and criminality, movies like The Mac, movies like Superfly which dealt with a, a coke dealer, the Mac, which dealt with prostitution. And even though in many of these movies there was a downfall or there was a tragic hero or there was someone trying to escape, for the most part, our people often missed that point. What they saw was the power, the guns, the weapons, the drugs, and the money. So when, when Brother Phil talks about the glamorization, you know, that feeds into fantasies and and desires and impressions, not just for jurors, but among our own people. So like today, and, and then, of course, you had the rise of, of gangster rap, which was mm-hmm. a, a, a much different type of rap, which dealt with crime and drugs and violence as opposed to the to the uh to the roots of hip hop. So all of these social and cultural things 
these cinematic uh, expressions have then um, consequences in the real world. So if I'm a young white uh, child living in the suburbs, I can buy gangster rap and feel like, you know, I can fantasize now. I can call myself, uh, you know, uh, DJ Schooly B and, and wear baggy pants and sunglasses. But I'm living totally opposite that reality. But if I'm in the hood, I feel that music is saying to me what my experience is or what it could be if I could get on top. So all those things are very important influences. And then the influence and the picture and the climate that it produces in the broader society. That is Brother Theo turned uh, so, so very well uh, laid it out. Now getting into the minds of potential jurors, but now getting into the minds of politicians who now mm-hmm. make laws. And now people start to fit a profile before they even introduce to the court system. Yes, sir. That is so important. Thank you all both. Because like you say, the consequences um, that you introduced from this continued demonization, that was the word that came to my mind because it's a glamorizing on the land, but it's demonizing because you're making people believe black people, they crave drugs. Black people, they, you know, have these negative qualities and characteristics and, um, then it's easier than to just say, well, get rid of them, and and we're all um, like this. Because my question was, is there a collateral, you know, is there collective damage? Because I think sometimes people see others, we in the black community, we may see other people depicted in certain ways, and we don't stand up like yourself, Brother Nabob, um, and, and make sure that the truth is out. How important you know, is that job to make sure that the truth gets out um, and, and can it, does it affect us all in, in the community if we don't all stand up to try to make sure truth gets out? And, and real quick, I want to make sure that the callers and the hosts, please, if you have a question or a comment, if you'd like to ask Brother Nabah a question, please press the number one to get into the host queue. Um, yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say it, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Uh, the minister, I believe, once said, I may not be quoting him perfectly, but he said something like, no individual can rise above the condition of their people. Okay. So my son, growing up, living in South Shore neighborhood in Chicago, uh, educated at Muhammad University, went on to high school at a private high school, one of the best in the city, plays the violin, uh, um, uh, very good in school in terms of his, his leadership abilities and all of that. But when he walks down the streets of South Shore, what do the police see? They see another one of them based on what has been perpetuated about who we are. And this is how even today you can get people stopped who are now brutalized by police like like our brother was, and now we're finding many people have been by a unit of the Louisiana State Troopers. This isn't Mm. something that years ago, no, 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 this is happening right now. And if you go to finalcall.com, 
And if you search, look up Louisiana State Troopers and you'll see uh, uh, the the victimization of a brother then. And you'll also see, I think we did a couple follow-up reports. This um, story is still unfolding. Where now they're finding video where this unit targeted and beat black men. Mercilessly. And black people mercilessly. For for literally no reason. How do you get there? Well, part of how you get there is the dehumanization of black people, period. You're the enemy. You're guilty. Guilty of what? Something. You're guilty of something. You know, I told you I grew up in Baltimore. Some years ago, uh, my brother, uh, who was probably about 30 years old, was arrested for something. And they literally kept him in jail for about three days. Because when he said to them, look, man, I've never been arrested for anything, the police told him, there's no way you can live in this community for 25, 30, 20 years and not ever have been arrested. They told him that. So they kept them for as long as they could until they finally had to to let them go. But even now, when you talk about the glorification of drugs and violence, look at what what are we looking at now? Raising Canaan. What are we looking at? A young man who desires to get into the drug trade and his mama brings him in, if I'm not mistaken, about the plot of the movie. Uh, The whole series Power and the other one uh, with uh, Terrence Howard. All ill-gotten gains, gangsterism, whether it is through music, drugs, or a combination of all of the uh, above. You know, even movies like the one, uh, it's hard out here for a pimp. Again, criminality. Criminality. You know, and this this glorification of criminality and, and us always being depicted. So it is not just the depiction, it is the singular it is the singularity of depiction. Where you don't get a broad view of who we are. So you got some white people, they criminals over here, they psychopaths over here, they astronauts over there, they're presidents over here, they're heroes over there, they're the dad taking care of the family over there, you know, they're the priest that stands up to the negative people in the neighborhood over here. There's a wide diversity about who white people are, what their experiences are, what their value is. We don't see that. And so with that kind of broad stroke, now you get stop and frisk. You black, I need to stop you. You know, I'm I'm just going to roll the dice. You're going to have something. And if you don't have something, guess what? I'll make something up. doesn't matter. And if I didn't get you on what you did, you did something else, or if you didn't do something else, your life isn't valuable anyway. So in Chicago, under former police commander John Burge, we had something like 20 years of literal police torture in this city. I'm talking about literal police torture. I'm talking about yes, people sir. beaten by officers in stations. I'm talking about people handcuffed to hot radiators. I'm talking about people almost, not almost, but people suffocated to the point of where they thought they were going to die. So they confessed. I'm talking about even electric shock being applied to people's genitals. This ain't in Vietnam. This is in the United States of America in the city of Chicago 
in the not too far ago days, and then a couple years ago, we found in this city, which is supposed to be under a consent decree, that there was mm. another kind of secret uh, police station or, or holding center or detention center, you know, it was it was basically unmarked, and people were taken there, and they were held there, you know. So so what allows for that to happen? This mass picture and association of criminality with us as a people, along with the tremendous amount of death and destruction that we visit and heap on one another. So the reality yes, of our ignorant victimization of one another due to circumstance, along with uh, these media portrayals, now opens us up. So now if we couldn't get the people that did it, well, we got to get somebody. Well, young man, maybe you're not that bad today, but uh, maybe we need to send a signal with you so that tomorrow you know, you won't be a criminal. We now have the uh, exonerated five. These are five young men, uh, teenagers, I believe, the last, uh, uh, late uh, or the late 1980s, accused of raping right. a woman in a park. Absolutely right. yes, innocent. Absolutely right. 100% innocent, had nothing to do with it. And Little the other baby. reality is... So while they targeted these black and Latino teenagers right. and accused them of wilding and beating and savaging this white woman in Central Park. So Mr. Trump, who was then, you know, he wasn't president then. He was just the, 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 the billionaire, fake billionaire, whatever you want to call him, mogul and a, and a very influential person. He took out an ad in the New York newspaper calling for the reinstatement of the death penalty for these young men. They were called animals. Um, and eventually, eventually, one of them ran into somebody in, in a penitentiary who he had had a problem with. And now they all went to jail as young as teenagers, right? right. They didn't go to no juvenile facility. They went to the big house with the adults. So one of the brothers ran into uh, another inmate who he had had a, a fight with previously. So the inmate basically kind of apologized to him. So the brother said, well, you know, man, hey, man, that was in a different place, you know, whatever. You know, we ain't got to get into that. And then the inmate confessed that he was the one committing huh. this heinous crime. And not only that. Not only that, but since there was not a legitimate investigation and search for the true rapist who almost killed this woman, this man went on to rape. This man went on to victimize people, and I believe even killed a couple people. So when you don't get the right person, you now allow these really vicious criminals to continue to victimize whether they victimize people in our community or whether they victimize people in other communities. Yes, sir. Yeah, that is so important. We're going to take this caller. Um, let me open up her line. Let's see here. Yes, ma'am. Sister Marguerite. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum salam, Sister Pamela. And wa alaykum salam, brother, and uh, all my brothers. 
and I am really enjoying this show. Uh, he, when he talked about innocence, it reminded me of this documentary. I mean, I have probably watched it 20 times, but it is so full of nuance. Have you heard about um, Trial 4? It's a Netflix documentary that is talks that about the case of Sean Ellis. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's heartbreaking. And so heartbreaking is that it happens over and over. And he was convicted of killing a detective, okay? And they picked him because he didn't know this detective, and he happened to be in the same location buying diapers. But when you – it's like eight episodes, and it is just – it's criminal from the judge – to the detective and how they railroaded this brother who didn't know what was going on. He was 19 years old, and he stayed in there for 19 years. They were able to get him out by the grace of Allah, and he became a Muslim in the uh, while he was in there because when he was released on, uh, I think, uh, for a new trial, you know, you could see our brothers in bow ties around him, but that really reminded me of what you said about this brother, totally innocent, didn't know what was going on, and how they fabricated evidence, took the girlfriend's fingerprint, put the girlfriend's fingerprint on the gun, and they said that connected him to the gun. But the, the bottom line was they were trying to cover themselves because they were all into robbing the dope dealer for their money and their drugs, and they could not let an investigation go forward. But anyway, you get a chance to see that. But I have a, a question also. Um, did, um, I remember reading this book uh, years ago, Woe, Woe Unto the Lawyer. But I also came across a, uh article that talked about when the founding fathers um, put the Constitution and all that together, the intent was not to allow lawyers to become political, professional uh, politicians. And have you ever heard of that, brother? I have not. Okay. Now, they were not supposed but now you find that you have these lawyers in these critical positions. They're, they're uh, uh, advisors to the president. They're doing all these other things. And when you mentioned about crack, I lived in L.A. at the time that the crack epidemic was beginning. And I happened to know a couple of the brothers who were dealing in it. And um, I found out. Later, and as I saw many of my friends and relatives go down, you know, go down the tube with this, is that um, um, they had planned that before the crack hit the street. So they put the laws in place because they knew black people weren't doing hard cocaine and hard heroin. So they put laws in place for weed and this new crack that was coming out that they were going to drop in the street. And that's how they were able to just, I mean, wipe out the neighborhood. L.A. was not the same after the early 80s. And all praises due to Allah, I came into the nation at that critical point. Mm. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for that, uh, Sister Marguerite. As always, we enjoy your calls. Yes, ma'am. We're going to take this next caller. We have a caller, Sister Lucille. Assalamu alaikum. 
Salaam. Can you hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. We hear you just fine, Sister Lucille. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I I wanted to um, just run through family scenarios to you, uh, the lawyers. Well, the first one, uh, my nephew, many years ago, he's about 15 years old, him and um, some friends did some robberies. White lady got shot. She didn't die. They gave him 20 years. He was 15 years old, never tried as an um you know, a juvenile. He went to jail. Oh, at least eight he did about fifteen to eighteen of those years straight. He came out and he had to go see a parole officer serve and he was gifted. My brother got him a job with a construction company. First he was really struggling, you know, when he first got out because he was trying to find his way. He had been locked up so long. And he got a job for a construction company, making about $31 an hour. He took his paychecks to, to see his parole officer, and all of a sudden, he was missing. We didn't know where he was. And so uh, we found out he got locked back up. But we, he never had a trial. He never had anything. So I went on a witch hunt and I started searching and when I went to his sisters and brothers, I'm like, well, who, who spoke to him? Nobody had heard from him. And I think maybe five years had passed. He wasn't in a penal system. So some kind of way I got hold to his parole officer and I started questioning her, asking her, where was my nephew? She tried to tell me she didn't know. So I kept on and kept on, and I said, well, I called this place, and they told me that you sent him away. I want to know why did you send him away. Well, finally she told me he was he was informative. He had been sitting there, not as a criminal, as a potential rapist, okay? And so when I found him, I started going seeing him, and I started talking to him and questioning him, asking him, you know, what happened? So he told me about an incident with a prostitute who took his wallet. He hit her, and she ended up going to the hospital. And and so that's the charges. They, they never charged him criminally. They just put him in this facility. And so he finally went to trial, and I tried to get him not to say anything in the courts. I said, be like O.J. Simpson. Just don't say nothing. Please defend whatever they ask you, especially if she don't show up in court. But he wouldn't. And so he would, he felt like he could tell his story and he would get out. But the grand jury turned against him. And now they've been holding him in this facility, I think, since 1996. They said they can mm. hold him indefinitely and never let him out. But listen, mm. you all, he... he got put in a hole for having sex with a doctor. These doctors in these facilities are holding these so-called sex offenders as slaves to have sex with them mm. because they don't have access to, you know, mm. to get out of being like that, and they can hold them as long as they want to. Now, this is the state mm. of Missouri. I'm not sure about other mm. 
Yes, ma'am. And I tried so, to reach out to a congressman once, but he never responded to me. And I I really didn't know where to go because, you know, they, like I said, they don't have him up under, like, you know, how people in prison, they got a number. They don't have him yes, like ma'am. that. Yes, ma'am. Forever. Wow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, another thing, still, yes, you ma'am. have to give me a call, um, you know, maybe off air since I am a Missouri licensed lawyer and perhaps we can get some information uh, for you. Um, okay. So you can definitely feel free to do that. Okay, yes, yes ma'am. ma'am. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And then there was my sister. She was, you know, well, police picked her up and locked her up, right? So they, her friend called me and told me she was locked up, so I called her and to see her. So I said, well, what happened? So I called the police station. They said, well, we got up for a robbery. I said, robbery? And they said, yeah. I said, well, who did she rob? And they said, well, she kicked in the neighbor's door and took they, this big old TV out of the house. That's what they told me. So they was holding her for that. So I started, you know, talking to public defenders of hers, and I said, well, I want to know what's going on with her trial. So they they didn't went and pulled back the records. Now, listen, she was about uh, maybe she was 34 years past whatever crime she had ever been charged for, okay? They didn't went and pulled up all of these records, and they were presenting them to the judge because they're going to try to send her away. So I went on that case that I met and found out who the judge was. And I wrote a letter to the judge, and I explained to him that, well, my sister had been in a uh, bad motorcycle accident years before that, so she had, like, uh, uh, what do you call them things? She had, like, metal all through her body. So there ain't no way in the world she could have kicked in the door and went in and picked up no TV, took it out. So I wrote all this, this to the judge, and I told the judge, I said, you know, I said, you may not know my sister because you're going to be looking at pieces of paper, but people who have never seen her, never met her, never talked to her, don't know nothing about her, and didn't go question people in the community about her. I said, but my sister is a person she'll give you the shirt off of her back. I said, yes, yes she committed a crime. She was a young girl. I said, and she has not been to jail since. She got placed all in her back. There's no way in the world she could have kicked in nobody's door or anything. And when the judge got my letter, I sent the letter before she went to the trial. And he called me. He wouldn't even let her go to trial. He called me and said, if I let her go, would you take her home with you? I said, yes, sir. That was the end of that case. But a lot of times if we don't go to fight for our people, you know, these lawyers, they do. They want money. Well, you got to give us twenty five thousand. You got to give us this, and you know, if you poor and you ain't got no money, at least go. If you can get to the judge before he reads all of this, you know, uh, trumped up charges on your members, you might can get them out. So I just wanted to share yes. those two stories. Thank oh, praises are due to a lot. Thank you so much, Sister Lucille, for that and your good work helping your sister. You know, because that really is the point of our show tonight. We know that our people are innocent in a lot of times and that the institutionalism of racial oppression that came 
long ago, 1877, as Brother Naba explained to us during Reconstruction, you know, these strategies were enacted. Convict leasing was one of them, where if you stepped on the crack, you know, you could be sent to jail for years if you if you're falsely accused of having a debt, you know, a small debt, you know, you could end up being put in jail. You know, uh, Brother Naba was explaining to us the, the Central Park Five where, you know, we know there are lies in police reports, lies about the character of people, and that's going on today. And these are the same strategies. And so, you know, it's so important what Sister was telling us uh, because I, I think, and, and Brother Athiel, I would like for you to weigh in because we know that even inside of the courtroom there are strategies used to make people who are innocent look guilty, things such as, um, you know, character evidence being used unfairly, um, you know, other things such as, like, prejudicial evidence that's not even relevant. Can you explain some of those techniques to the audience? Because I think they're so important um, as we see what goes on inside of courtrooms. Yeah, well, you know, what, what, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, and, and, and in every trial that you're representing somebody who's accused, one of the first things is that you have the person who's accused of, of, of the crime, and if they are, let's say, uh, incarcerated at the time, in the county jail, whatever, cannot make bond, but they come to trial, the first thing you really need to do, and the thing that I always do, is appearance. In other words, have him or her in civilian clothes. You see, because if you try somebody, and this person is in the orange jumpsuit or gray jumpsuit or the county jumpsuit, if you will, they're in trial, and the jurors look at them. That then is the, the jurors look at that and say, okay, hey, this person must be guilty of something because he or she is in the orange jumpsuit. That's the character. It's the physical characterization of this person. And so one of the things that, uh, 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 lawyers should do in that regard is making sure that they're the the first thing even before the person opens his or her mouth they the jurors see this person well now if you see this person dressed in a shirt tie dress whatever the situation might be as opposed to the county or jail prison guard then you know that speaks volumes initially as to what the potential juror is going to look at and form in his or her mind this person's character. Now, during the course of the trial, you will have, even in the opening statements, if you will, these subtle suggestions that this person accused of something may have done something before. So now you try to bring in uh, 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 previous victims or something like that, and I know you know in you know in your bifurcated trials you're always talking about you have a guilt innocent phase, and if the person is found guilty, then you go to the second phase, the punishment phase of the trial, where you talk about the individual's uh, 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 past. But the thing is, the lawyers have to be 
paying attention because in the first part, the innocent, uh, the guilt innocent portion of the trial, if you have a prosecutor who's going to bring in, let's say, the victim or character traits, and it's not objected to, now the door is wide open. You see, so he or she, the prosecutor, may make a subtle suggestion. But if the person representing, if the lawyer representing the person who's accused who's on trial does not object to it, and then what they, what, what is known as pursue, you know, the objection all the way through, requesting a mistrial. And if that doesn't happen already now, you have in people's minds, you know, the character, even though the judge may sustain the objection. And, you know, you have to continue, the lawyer has to continue to pursue the adverse ruling up to and, and requesting a mistrial because the thought is then, okay, the judge says jury is to disregard. Well, how are you going to disregard that? I'm going to then put this on the other side of my brain and I'm not going to think about it? That's illogical. Right. right. You after know, you, so after the, you've said these bad things about right. someone that really right. are not charged, they're not crimes, they're just conduct that someone is making up, potentially, you don't, you don't know if they've not been indicted. So I could come in and say anything about a person, um, and these are the types of things that are the types of statements, you know, allegations or slander that Brother Thiel is, is talking about. It's, it's uncharged conduct, and uh, many times people are, you know, well, he, he's a bad person, you know, and, and lies are told that way right in the courtroom many times. And if we're you not know, paying so, attention, yeah, they can get an, uh, uh, two there. And, and if you don't pursue, if the lawyer representing the accused does not pursue the, ad, uh, uh, you know, does not pursue it all the way to, to, to ruling, requesting ultimately a mistrial, then it's the cat's out of the bag, so to say. And you have yeah. done nothing. The lawyer has done nothing even to preserve stuff on appeal. So you've got to pay attention because it's those subtle suggestions, the subtle, you know, character, uh, slander, uh, slanderous character uh, suggestions that get heard by the jury that oftentimes are taken into consideration that can be used, if you will, in the deliberation rooms as to people thinking, okay, well, this person, you know, may have done this because, yeah, we heard he or she did this in the past when they never should have heard it in the beginning. Yeah, and, and it may just be a total lie. It's the same type of slander and stereotype that's done in the print. But you would think in the court you have more rules that, ha you know, that would dictate what comes in and safeguards, but sometimes that's not true. Uh, but I wanted to say this, uh, Brother Nabai and I were talking a little earlier, and he was talking about some of the sensationalism that we see in the media uh, that makes us scratch our heads sometimes uh, where a story is, is covered, but the complete story isn't out. They pick and choose the worst parts, so or they'll, you know, they'll kind of make it where it's mischaracterized. And, and you know, I wanted to let you know, and, and Brother Nabat, you'd like to kind of give us some of that, how often that's done or some of the egregious times you've seen that. But that happens in the court as well. Uh, but the thing is, in the court, 
you could never offer page one of a document um, and not include all of the pages. It's a rule called optional completeness. So, see, this is why sometimes they'll take these uh, weak allegations to the media where it's just lying going on and no no need to corroborate or to provide sufficient evidence because in the court you couldn't just, well, I'd like to just offer, you know, this one page. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's never, ever, ever allowed, but that type of misleading action is why oftentimes you see these type of lies out in the media because nobody nobody can stand up against them, um, you know, in the media. It becomes a he say, she say. Does that, you know, make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think sister, again, um, the question of who tells your story and who is seen as legitimate. And one of, one of the things we have always done as a final call is question the official result that comes from the police department. Right. That's not how journalists have traditionally been trained to operate. Journalists have traditionally been trained to operate that the police are in authority and it is okay to quote what they say as if it is truth versus its allegation. It's accusation. But since both the media and the police and the criminal justice system are all elements that are part of this, the, the universe of white supremacy, they all work right. together. They all work together. And so the, the media, uh, the other thing is, again, who tells the story who defines what's going on, what language do they use. There was, for example, even in the caption, there was there were some very famous pictures that came out with uh, Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina one year, uh, years ago. One showed black folk basically wading through water that was almost chest high, bags were full. And the caption said something about Blacks basically having food after looting a place, right? Okay. And then there was a picture of white folks. Almost exact same picture, except the people were white. And the caption talked about whites basically finding food to sustain themselves. So language, the voices that you hear, the voices that you don't hear. The police department is not an impartial party. Right. They are after a conviction. So when a reporter is talking to a police officer or the police department, he is talking to really one source. And it should be treated as one source, which means it is subject to being questioned about what they're saying and why, what their motivations are. And what their reputation and character is, just like you do for ordinary people. And this is what has distinguished the final call in other black newspapers from white newspapers. I just want our people to, to, to understand, and I'll say this real quick, you know, keep running the white folks and have them tell your story if you want to. That's right. And you may get that five minutes of fame. But when those cameras go away, 
what happens to you now. So you, you, it's nothing wrong with getting maximum exposure, if you will. But don't block out your own people who have the ability to, to stick with your story for the long term. And these types of stories are generally not a one assignment story for us because we want to know in the end how did it turn out was justice done. Yes, sir. That is so important because, like, you you know, the story that is in on the front page of this week's final call, Black Families, Children Under Siege, what we have here, as Brother Nabat talked about the police, well, oftentimes it is being shown that Child Protective Services is actually an arm of the police as well. And so how these stories are reported in the news is oftentimes shown from the police's standpoint, which depicts black people as being these negative people. An example would be Micaiah Bryant's story, where our young sister who was in foster care um, setting uh, was actually murdered or killed by an officer, and the the story initially that everybody saw was that she was wrong, she was bad, she was violent. There was no balance to the story regarding that that child's uh, story, as well as the state's responsibility to take care of her. And so, what you have as a harm is that you have, in these cases, 90% of children in foster care will become involved in the juvenile justice system or we're seeing them murdered. And a lot of times that's because, as Brother Nabat so beautifully said, who is telling our story? Who is giving us the information? Do we really know that these agencies, as the, the Final Call's front page says, do we really know that these agencies that are supposed to protect children and unite families are actually snatching children from parents and hurting our community? They just reported what the advocates warned. This is what we've been saying as advocates. So you always want a balance. You want a reporting system uh, just like as, as lawyers, but that, that we always have to get our client's side of the story out. You you have to have both sides done. And this is what we as black attorneys, especially those who, um, you know, strive to be righteous, strive to defend the poor, and really are aware of what this system is really about, which is just a continuation of the slave system, um, you know, and, and it's just unjust. So I, I think, you know, this has been a really important conversation because I, I just want to say in also in this week's final call, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan is in a story called Who is the Natural Enemy of the Original Man? He talks about lawyers, and he, he did talk about how lawyers, sometimes when they pass the bar and, you know, they represent people and, you know, the the term I got to get lawyered up now, he says that it's liared up is a better term because now that the client has hired a lawyer, he'll ask, well, did you do it? And, you know, and it goes on to talk about those type of lawyers who, you know, their job is to, to just really manipulate and, you know, get people who are, 
murderers and, and wrongdoers, you know, playing with the system. And that's what we see a lot with white, the white uh, wicked world, you know, all of this lying and all of this justifying these lies. So we wanted to, in our topic, to make sure you understood that we're talking about that black people, as Sister Tiffany said when she was on the show, black people, because of our sojourn here and because of the strategies and the, the just the whole lynching that has continued throughout time, we, we're, we're innocent uh, a lot of times. So the minister closes. He says, in the system of God, when you are wrong, he says that, I can't defend you. If you are wrong, what is the defense for wrong in the system of God? The only defense for wrong is, is there a mitigating circumstance that will limit the punishment for what you did? But if you're wrong with God, you're wrong. So whom God, when God delivers his judgment, he wrongs no one. So I wanted to, um, you know, we're, we're down to five minutes, and I want both of you all to give us some closing remarks. And thank you once again for talking about this topic of why we must take a deeper look into defending the innocent. And um, who, I'll, you know, Brother brother Phil, did you want to make a comment in closing? Well, sure. You know, the, the, the thing with defending those, you know, defending the innocent is that, we, as you were saying, Sister Pamela, we have to look deeper into it. You know, and, and, you know, I was recently on a matter, on a parole revocation matter, where this young man, you know, was on parole and accused of an aggravated assault, that another young man had been shot. Well, he then is accused of the crime, and so that's a new law violation. On top of that, then, because of that new law violation, it triggered a parole revocation matter. Well, the situation as it unfolded, he was not the person. It was, you know, so we had to do our due diligence and our homework on this. We got a copy of the video. We got a copy, which was fortunate with social media, that we showed the young man who, that I was, you know, what he looked like on the day that this supposedly happened. And as it turned out, you know, we got him released and he's, you know, his parole, he's back on papers and everything. He's out of the county. The case was dismissed in the court. The uh, uh, the warrant was withdrawn as the parole uh, revocation warrant was withdrawn. But the bottom line is that we did our due diligence on that. We found out we did our own investigation. And that's the kind of passion that we have to have that if somebody comes to us as lawyers and they're telling us, look, we did not do this, it's up to us. That's our job. That's what our license is there for, is to represent those who are falsely accused if we're representing somebody in a criminal accusation. It's up to us to do that due diligence to make sure and not to paint this person and say, okay, well, this person now came to the office, I just see dollar signs. No, it's much deeper than that. Because at the end of the day, we're going to be judged by Allah as well. And so I want to be on that side. I mean, I got so many things that might be wrong, but at least I hope would say that, you know, that Allah would say, okay, well, Ethel, at least you did your due diligence in representing somebody and your creed to the profession and your creed to, you know, as a member of the fruit of Islam and the nation of Islam. Yes, sir. Thank you. And Brother Naba, please 
would you close us out? We're down to two minutes, and if you have any closing remarks, we welcome you. Well, first of all, sis, I just want to say thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's been great to be on with you and Brother Phil. Um, go to finalcall.com and subscribe, support the FOI. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, um, at RM Final Call, and you can find out at The Final Call on Twitter as well as Facebook. Support media that supports you. Yes, and sir. this is a show that supports you, so you should support it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Again, we were so honored to have you. And I would like to thank you all for listening to A Time for Justice. To hear previous shows, you can log on to the Elevated Places um, blog talk show as well. Please don't forget to listen to the Thursday night edition of Ask Dr. Ava, our beautiful Minister Ava Muhammad show on Thursday at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. I would like to thank you, the team. I would like to thank Sister Samaya Muhammad, Sister Rona Muhammad, Sister Donna Muhammad, Brother Terrence Muhammad, and once again, Sister Minister Ava Muhammad. Thank you all once again for listening, and tune in next week for more informative discussions. Thank you, and assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam.